Good morning. This morning we are going to turn together to 1 Timothy. I'm going to be picking up again in the epistle of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2. And before we turn there together, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Lord, our God, we thank you for the great privilege of coming together into your holy presence uh, to worship you, to delight in you, to hear your voice. O God, we pray that you would graciously bless us now by your word, work in our hearts by your spirit, uh, overcome our weaknesses, convict us of our sin and of your grace and goodness and glory that we would love you and delight in you, that we would receive your word with great joy, Lord, and pursue living to your praise more fully in the days that you give us on this earth. How we thank you, O God, that you have called us to yourself. And we pray all these things looking to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking this morning at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And just as a a few words of preface as you turn there, uh, you probably all know this past Monday, the Supreme Court of our land uh, ruled in a way that really rejects the distinction of male and female, of men and women. And what happened uh, this Monday in our culture, in our society, is, of course, really nothing new in this world. It's just one of the myriad of ways that Apart from Christ, apart from God, sinners in sin suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Now, thousands of years ago, the psalmist, inspired by the Spirit, wrote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds and cast their cords away from us. We know that in our own sin and apart from Christ, we do exactly the same thing and have done the same. Uh, We too once lived in the passions of our flesh, and as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, but the glorious reality is that God, who is the creator of all things, who sustains all things, is calling a people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is what he does by his word and spirit, and what he's doing here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's speaking His Word to us. He's calling us back to Himself, calling His church to grow in everything that's beautiful and holy. By grace we've been saved. Christ has done this great work of salvation for us. And this is what we're going to look at together this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 1, though our focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 10. We're going to read the whole chapter. So hear with me uh, the Word of God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, 
And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, as the Apostle Paul pens uh, the words of these, this chapter, as the Spirit moves him to write these words for Timothy, uh, for the church at Ephesus, for the church in every place, it's, it's clear as we look at the wider context, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, that he is writing these things particularly in chapter 2 and 3 with a focus on the gathered church on the church at worship together. The apostle says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, as Paul addresses the church uh, he's begun already speaking of prayer, the call for us to pray for all people as a gathered church. And now in verse 8, he comes really to focus on a particular applications uh, for the life of the church at worship. This is for whatever the location the church is gathered in. In verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place... The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, as Paul, by the Spirit, is directed to write these words, he's really bringing several things to the attention of the church here. And first of all, it's really a distinction that goes back to creation itself. God has created men and women male and female. And from the wider context of 1 Timothy and the rest of the New Testament, it's clear that from within the substance of humanity or those of humanity who are men, those who are men within the church who are saved by Christ and brought to new life, from among those men who are faithful members of the church, there are men who are called to lead the congregation in prayer at times of corporate worship. 
It's a pattern here that the apostle is unfolding that fits with the teaching of Scripture on ordained leadership in church ministry. As we know uh, from the epistles to the Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament, this is not something that negates women from praying as part of the body of the church. But the emphasis here, as in Paul's words here in 1 Timothy, is on the calling of men to lead in worship, which the remainder of this chapter and the next one point us to. So what is our Lord doing here as He speaks these words to us? He's, he's reminding us that He has an order for all of creation, that He has an order for the worship and the life of the church, which stands in harmony with His creation order foundational to the reality of His creation of humanity and His work of redemption is that He has blood-bought, restored image-bearers, men and women, who are of equal worth, of equal spiritual capability and capacity, who are together called to grow into the goodness and beauty, the order of the roles that He gives. And those roles, as we look at the sweep of Scripture, have a great overlap, don't they? In terms of Christian life, there's a great deal of similarity in terms of what we are called to as Christians, as men and women. And at the same time, there are distinct facets or aspects of calling which come to men and women in different circumstances and places, which are different from each other. I don't know if how many of you remember high school math, but a Venn diagram where you have these two overlapping circles. If you'd picture this as a Venn diagram of men and women, the overlap is very large between the two. But there are distinctions and distinct areas of calling. And this is the way it is in God's order as well, he's showing us here, for the life of the church. There's a general category of roles for men and for women. There's a great deal of overlap in the category of all believers. But there are also particular callings. And not all of us as believers may be suited at a particular time in life, uh, maybe because of circumstances or because of particular giftings or abilities of where we are in life to be called into specific callings within the general category of callings that there are specifically for men or for women. And so, for example, when we look at Scripture, we see in the next chapter in Timothy that there are some men who are called to be elders or deacons in the life of the church, in God's ordering of his church. But not all men who are Christians are or will be called to those offices. Again, sometimes simply because in God's providence, it just doesn't happen that they are. As sometimes maybe there are other men that have a particular abilities or, or life circumstances at that moment that make them better suited to serving in that particular way. And we see this in the passages that speak to the callings of elders and deacons. And 
As we look at the passage of the calling, particularly of deacons, which ties in with the calling of elders, we, we see there as well that if these men are married, it's not a calling apart from their wives. And so 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, we see there that there, there's also a specific subset of women uh, who are, if, if their husbands would be considered to be called to be a deacon, that there are also particular qualifications for them, which would impact whether their husband would be suited for that office, uh, whether they together, as the husband carries out that office, as a husband and wife, uh, would function uh, in, appropriately according to God's order at that time in that place. And we could move to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. And there we see in the case of women in the church, there are particular women who are older widows of godly character who could be enrolled into a particular service in the church. But the Lord says there by His Word that, that younger widows did not have that qualification. Uh, and nor did older widows who did not at that point in life though they were perhaps members of the church, really have a, a reputation for good works, for faithfulness in child-rearing, for hospitality in the life of the church. And so we see that God's ordering of, of roles and places and service in the church, it does have a differentiation within it. And so what our verse here, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2 along with the whole New Testament, shows us that, yes, God is doing the same thing in all believers, men and women, old and young. He's saving. He's sanctifying us. He's making us fruitful. He's calling us in all kinds of different vocations in life. He's preparing us for glory. But at the same time, God has created a diversity and he does differentiate within his body. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, as we read there what the apostle says, it's very clear that any particular calling in God's ordering of the church is not any ground for pride or boasting. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 make very clear that the most excellent gift among all the marvelous gifts that Christ gives in His church is the gift of love, which is not constrained to either sex. It is not constrained to any age or to any calling within the body of the church, nor is faith or hope or the other fruits of the Spirit. So we might ask, well, why? Why does God order His church the way He does? Why does God order creation the way that He does? Or, or government authorities and citizens or em, employers and employees? Why, why did God do it this way? Uh, why, does, uh, why does He call men here in particular and not women to lead the church in prayer, in corporate worship. Well, one reason that we can give why the Lord has differentiated 
in the church or in marriage, family, employment, is simply because He is our Creator. He reminds us by it that that He is God and we are not. His ways are higher than our ways. He is the one who is perfect in wisdom. He has an appointed order for all of creation, including in His redeeming work in the church. God is the one who gives particular gifts, abilities, and places of service within and for every member of the body. He delights in them all. They are all precious in His sight. He is our Father. We are His children. He is our Lord. We are His servants. And so, in a sense, it gives us all a place of humility before God, doesn't it? As He calls and as He appoints and as He places and as He guides us through our life, and as well a sense of rest. The Lord knows what He's doing. He's delighted to put us in this particular place. And in whatever place He puts us, there are going to be there are hard things about that because of our sin and the sin of others. And, and there are sweet and good and delightful things about that place. And, and the Lord has ordered it for our good and our growth and sanctification and for the good of the whole body. Whatever the calling is. Well, another reason connected uh, with this is that the church and the leadership roles within a church among men, men, as well as the leadership roles that women are to exercise within the church, think of Titus 2, the older women teaching the younger women, or think of Priscilla and Aquila teaming together and mentoring Apollos, All of these orderings that the Lord gives in His Word are to display to us in the church and to the world around us that Jesus is at work doing marvelous things in diverse ways and yet in ordered ways. Our Lord Jesus Christ does actually save people and transform them from darkness to light, from death to life. He actually sanctifies people so that when you or I were first converted, when we first heard the Word, or when our, when our ears were first opened, maybe if we grew up in a covenant home and we, we started to actually hear the Word and, and listen to it, when we were at that phase of being a young Christian, a baby Christian, We trusted in Christ, and we were beginning to grow. But by God's grace, if some years have elapsed, you can can see ways that God has changed you and grown you further and matured you and developed you. And so He's doing this work, and He's giving a rich diversity of beautiful gifts to men and women, and these gifts, abilities, and callings are intended to complement one another and for the strengthening and building up of the church. They are for the serving of the church. They are to serve others. They are to help and strengthen each other in the Lord as they reflect God's creation 
and redemption order. They remind us that we need God and we all need one another. So one facet of this diverse uh, beauty and ordering that God has given for His church is what He says to us here in verse 8. The Lord desires that in every place, as the church is gathered together for worship, that men be called to lead in prayer. Now, the church at Ephesus, like every church, including us this morning, had its own package of remaining sin to deal with, its own problems. And so do we. And, and here in the epistle of Timothy, we see some of the particular difficulties that they were wrestling with or that needed to be addressed in the life of the church. We know Paul's already written to Timothy and strengthened him to, to really be steadfast in dealing with the false teachers in the church. Now, there were these uh, people going around who were very eager to teach their opinions, but who really didn't get the law and the gospel. They didn't understand. And now as we see in verse 8, evidently there are men in the church, including men who are called to lead in prayer, who are angry and quarreling likely with each other. We don't know exactly. The text doesn't expound on that. Uh, if this was a facet of their character, as seems possible, no doubt this angry, quarreling spirit uh, also impacted their homes, their wives, their children. And so the apostle says in verse 8, as he uh, gives this particular call in the ordering of the life of the church, that in every place the men should pray, they are to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. As the apostle tackles this particular need in the life of the church, in the life of these men, he, he begins here with instruction on the posture and character of men as they are called to lead in prayer. How are they to do so? By lifting holy hands. Raised hands in the Bible are a picture of intercession, of supplication, of coming into the presence of the one who is great and holy with humility and reverence. Well, it's fascinating that, that Paul mentions hands here, isn't it? Why, why would he do that? Well, I think even for us, though maybe we don't think about it, our hands reflect a great deal about us, don't they? Maybe you can remember uh, the particular hands of a man, and, and it might be for good or it might not be for good. I can remember uh, from my childhood an old elder in the church that I grew up in, was a godly, hard-working farmer. And his hands were rough and calloused with deep wrinkles and deep creases in them. And he had a firm handshake. And he would look you right in the eye. And there was a godliness about this man 
that, that would seem to look right through you, seem to look into your soul. At least that's what I felt as a teenager. Men, what do your hands reflect about you? The Bible says quite a bit about our hands. We read in Genesis that Noah's father hoped that his son might be the promised seed who would deliver them from the toil of their hands. And we read later in in Genesis that the angels reached out their hands to grab a hold of Lot's and to pull him back into the house to safety from the mob outside. Jacob, how did Jacob use his hands? Jacob covered them with goat skin. He used his hands to deceive his elderly father. Reuben used his hands to preserve Joseph from the hands of his brothers who wanted to murder him. The priests laid their hands on bulls for sacrifice. Moses lifted up his hands to intercede for the people. When the people rebelled against God in the book of Judges, we read that God gave them into the hands, the cruel hands of their enemies. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes warn us against being enslaved and ensnared, destroyed by hands of sexual immorality. There are lazy hands in the book of Proverbs, and there are diligent hands in the book of Proverbs. In Isaiah, the Lord says that I will not hear the prayers of the people because they have blood on their hands. He warns the violence and the abusive for what they have done with their hands. Men, brothers, what do our hands and what we have done with our hands, what does it say about us? What does it say about us? The psalmist says this in Psalm 24, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. No doubt as as we reflect on what my hands have done, the times our hands have moved in greed or when they have idled in laziness, the times they've failed to help others in needs or they've been clenched in anger, in sinful anger, the times they've been used for evil. Uh, We know that we are a people of unclean hands as much as we are a people of unclean lips. But we also know, don't we, from the Word of God, that these words of Psalm 24 were beautifully fulfilled in Jesus. There was one, one man who walked this earth whose hands were always good, whose hands were always clean, whose hands We're always upright. One who didn't mind getting his hands dirty or wounded for good. One whose hands were and always are holy because his heart was and always is pure. Jesus is the only man on this earth that had clean hands, innocent hands throughout his life. Hands that brought healing 
and blessing. Think of Jesus' ministry, how many times he laid hands on children, on lepers, on the blind, on the sick, and brought healing. He brought new life. And then we read in the Gospels that his hands were crucified. Then after his resurrection, he said to his disciples, see my hands. In his resurrection glory. Well, as Paul wrote this verse in Timothy, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. He knows, and we know from the context of Scripture, what Paul has said just before in verses earlier in this chapter. It's in Christ alone that sinful men can have clean hands and pure hearts. And we can grow in having holy hands and lifting holy hands by the grace and the strength and the power that the God of the universe, that the Lord Jesus Christ supplies for us so that we can indeed grow in lifting up holy hands. And this is what Christ is calling the church at Ephesus and us to, that men would lead in prayer with saved and sanctified hands, leading in prayer in a way that, that others who know these men who are leading them in prayer would be glad to join them in prayer because they know that these men, those sinners, are sinners who have been saved and who are pursuing life in Christ. These are men who repent, men who are broken over their sin, men who love Jesus, who want to grow in His grace. Perhaps we all know at some point in life that to be led by, in prayer by a man who is unrepentant in sin is jarring. Wouldn't it be jarring for the church in Ephesus to be led in prayer by someone that everybody knew was argumentative, angry, and quarrelsome? You would wonder, does this man even know what he's doing in approaching God in prayer? And so, how much we need here to look to Christ. How much we need to pray that the men who are God calls us would also be growing as a whole body, be praying for this, for all of ourselves, and particularly that the Lord would raise up many and more and more to lead us in prayer. This is what the Lord desires in us. Now, it seems clear as we read this passage that not only did the men in the Ephesian church need to be called to live life in greater consistency in Christ, in their calling, so too did the women. And again, this is in the setting of worship we see here. Look with me to verses 9 and 10. We'll read verse 9. The apostle goes on to say, Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. It seems that one of the challenges for the Ephesian gathered body of the church, and perhaps unrealized by some of the women in the congregation, was that the relationship between the culture that they had been saved out of 
uh, the clothing, the adornment that they had uh, lived in all of their lives uh, was to be sanctified as well in their life in the body and worship of the church. Uh, We know from uh, history, from the Greco-Roman world, that there was a really uh, just a culture of the celebration of image and of opulence. There was an idolatry of sexual pleasure without restraint. And we know the temple in Corinth had some 3,000 temple cult prostitutes, men and women. The city of Ephesus had this cult of Aphrodite. These realities were woven into entertainment, to parties, to employments. And there was a tremendous wealth and opulence in Ephesus at this time. And the accounts that we have written and images that remain of uh, style, uh, the, the hair uh, of the ladies was simply incredible at times. The braiding, weaving gold through it, sprinkling gold dust over your hair, uh, lavish ornamentation. And uh, there was this, this whole culture. Uh, those who were wealthy and displayed this Uh, very openly. And then those maybe who are not so wealthy, but who are wishing and trying in other ways to copy this opulence of adornment to whatever extent they could. Really, the goal of adornment in this cultural context was to display. And it could be for any mixture of aesthetic or social, emotional, or maybe sexual ends depending on the individual. And certainly the Christian women at Ephesus knew this at at some level. But from the apostles' words here, they needed to re-engage the fact that as they considered their, their clothing and adornment, that coming to a worship service was not in the first place about this. And it was certainly not about uh, their own image in terms of attracting others' attention to their image. It was to glorify the Creator, not to have its end in the creature or the created. The point of gathered worship as a church was to worship the Lord, to glorify Christ. The triune God was to be the center, to be adored marveled at and delighted in. And this somehow had gone awry in the hearts of at least some of the women here in the congregation. And so the apostle by the Spirit gives this instruction and certainly there's application for men here as well. But note, first of all, as the apostle says these words, likewise also that the women should adorn themselves The call is not to ditch adornment. It's not to arrive in shapeless, bland, colorless clothing with with no jewelry, no makeup. And we see this from the testimony of the whole of Scripture. Christ, by Paul, calls women here, welcomes you as women to come to worship adorned. And for what the text says here, it's plain that this is not just spiritual. 
We don't want to diminish the spiritual. It's core and central, and the apostle speaks of that. But the fact that the call to adornment here is not only spiritual, but includes the physical, fits with the whole of Scripture. God is redeeming us body and soul. Our physicality is also spiritual. We see this in Scripture, don't we? God delights in the beauty of His creation. The tabernacle was made beautiful. The temple was beautiful. The Song of Solomon delights in the beauty of the bride. God Himself, as He speaks in Ezekiel of His bride, He says this in Ezekiel 16, that He clothed her in embroidered cloth, fine leather, fine linen, and silk. I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You grew exceedingly beautiful. And then think of the book of Revelation and uh, the vision of the future, the perfected resurrection, the new creation beauty to come that we long and groan for and we look forward to. Well, with these things in mind, what then is to shape and direct your pursuit of adornment for worship, which then has implications, of course, into all of life? Well, I think there's several questions we can ask ourselves as we look at verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, we see that you should aim for respectable apparel. And so a good question to ask is this. Does this apparel, this particular outfit that I'm choosing, reflect my coming into the presence of the living God in holy worship? Does this reflect my respect for the purpose of why I and everyone else around me is coming to worship? Is my apparel helpful and beautiful for worship of God? Secondly, in verse 9, we also see that there should be a pursuit of modesty and self-control as we adorn ourselves for worship. And so we can ask ourselves those questions. Does this reflect immodesty and a self-control as I adorn myself? Now, yes, there will, there will always be poorer and richer in a church, but does my clothing reflect my love and care for the body of the church? Could it be seen as ostentatiously opulent? Or could it be maybe the opposite just absolutely careless. Why do I buy what I buy and wear what I wear? Is my motive to worship the creature or the creator? Am I controlled by something other than love for Christ and delight in God's goodness and creation for His glory? Does my clothing in its, in its beauty and its adornment reflect this respect and modesty and self-control that is reflective of a heart of praise to God. God calls us into this also to free us from the snares that can so easily grab hold of our hearts. Now, Paul places respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control in contrast with braided hair, gold, and pearls, and costly attire. Of course, we could ask, how do we apply that? We look again at the wider testimony of Scripture. We see Lydia... In the book of Acts, she was a seller of costly purple fabric. 
We know gold and pearls are celebrated in the Old and New Testament. So these things are certainly not inherently sinful. But as well, we know from the context of the ministry and life of the church here that that they were being used and carried in such a way that was unhelpful for both the individual's own hearts and for others around them. And so Paul, aware of what is happening in this church, is very practically rebuking the women here and calling them to life in Christ, juxtaposing a pursuit of material extravagance that is self-directed with adornment that is Christ-centered, that's loving and thoughtful to the whole of the church. Where some of the men were allowing themselves to come to worship in a spirit of anger and quarreling, some of the women were also coming in a visible display of their own sin. And even while they are coming to worship the Lord, their hearts and motives were mixed. And what does our Lord do as He sees that? Our Lord doesn't cast them out. He knows that He is calling sinners to Himself. And He's sanctifying them. He's calling them to both grow, men and women, in these particular areas, in this passage to growth in grace. And here the apostle goes on to say an encouragement to women in pursuing godliness to pursue, above all, spiritual adornment, godliness, and good works, the core priority of adornment as we think of adornment is, yes, for a heart that is filled with wonder and gratitude at the grace of God, at the majesty of God, at the goodness of God, a heart that's pursuing being filled with the fruit of the spirits and the beauty of holiness. And as the Apostle describes this, where that priority is regained increasingly in our hearts by His grace, then the right principles and contours will be there as we search the Word to give us some direction on physical adornment. And the Lord leaves it with those words, modesty, self-control, respectable apparel of adornment. There are no tape measures. There are no colors. The Lord gives a Christian freedom and delight in all the beauty of His creation. But He gives heart directions and, and a place for us to reflect and to think and to to really be called into worship of Jesus, worship of God, as we walk through these things. Isn't our Lord gracious to us? He sees our weaknesses, and these are only two of the many, many areas that we could have as men and women. He shepherds us, and He calls us to Himself. And what is shown here to us is that Jesus as he does this, he is building his church, his new creation world. Heaven is leaning into this earth. As our culture does the exact opposite, it seeks to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There is so much brokenness and misery that results as a result of that. And here, as people are called to Christ and into new life, what happens to us? 
Uh, we slowly have the edges chipped off of us. Where our hearts are hard, they're made more soft. We slowly become more beautiful and glorious by His grace. As we're reoriented and directed into God's creation order and redemption order, His glory is made known. And there is sweetness and goodness and blessing there. And great love in Christ and for one another. Now, won't this make us, as we pursue these things, men, thinking about our hands and our hearts and our attitudes, and women, about your hearts and attitudes as well. Won't, as we pursue this, this will make us a more refreshing blessing to each other, to the whole of the church, and a brighter witness to our world. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we bow before you, and we thank you that you care for us, both body and soul. Lord, you call us in your word to look to you in all our needs, and Lord, we confess that we have plenty of them. Lord, by nature, we are a sinful people, and we pray that you would cleanse us from all of our sin, that you would renew us in the joy of your salvation in pursuing all that is good and holy and lovely, that we would be transformed more and more already in this life to display the beauty of holiness, uh, the beauty of the order that you have designed, and delight in the way that that complements and strengthens and builds up the whole body of your church. O Lord, we pray, grant us your grace Give us great joy in your salvation. Make us glad in you as we serve you, Lord, so that as we go forth, we would bring gladness. We would bring and be bearers of instruments of new life to those around us, Lord, who desperately need your salvation. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together now to sing in closing our song, Let the Nations Be Glad.